Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Jane, Aunt Jane, how can you say that about a lord? shouted Marianne. Spoil sport, muttered Anna under her breath. Aunt Jane had finally put down the newspaper which absorbed her every morning. Oh, pish, Jane, said Edward. Let the girls have some fun. I'm sure he won't marry either of them anyway. Fanny winced as she noticed her mother's quick frown. Of course, Elizabeth would dearly love to have a lord in the family. Is it fun to dance with a drunken young man? Aunt Jane was asking Fanny's father dryly, looking at him over the tops of her spectacles. Is it a good use of one's time and talents? I think Fanny knows what I mean, doesn't she? How had her aunt known that Fanny hated Lord Smedley with all her heart? She nodded quietly in agreement. Yes, she had been scorched by the comet's burning tail. Anna might flirt and dice with danger, but Fanny herself had no desire for the sport. But a lord, it was Elizabeth. Surely, Jane, you make an exception for the aristocracy. Sounds to me like Anna did very well. Well, doubtless the young man will be coming to call then, Aunt Jane said. What do you think, Anna? Will he be paying your uncle a polite morning call today to pursue the acquaintance? Anna looked at the tablecloth. In her heart, Fanny knew that he would not. And in fact, might very well have a sore head this morning and possibly not even remember Anna's name. The silence which answered her aunt's question told its own story. The girls, said Aunt Jane, authoritatively, having got the attention of the whole room, are in training. They are in training to become heroines, like the heroines in stories and novels. Oh, Aunt Jane, Fanny burst out. She couldn't help herself. I'm nothing like a heroine. Nobody will ever write a story about my life. Anna, perhaps. But I'm very ordinary. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Erin Christie. Today we're joined all the way from London by Lucy Worsley, who has just released her third young adult fiction novel, The Austen Girls, which follows two of Jane Austen's beloved nieces as they enter society on the marriage market in Georgian England. Not only is Lucy a fabulous writer, she's a very well-known historian and the current chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. My first question is about the current global pandemic we're experiencing. As a seasoned historian, have you thought at all about your role in this pandemic? So I actually work at Hampton Court Palace as one of the curators there. So we are very worried that we don't have our visitors coming in to see us at the moment because that's what pays for mending the hole in the roof. So that is really taking up a lot of my time and mental effort worrying about that big problem like the whole of the rest of the museums sector. But in the, the long term, I'm not so worried because I think what history teaches you is that over time, some things get worse and some things get better. You know, um, the only sure thing is that things are going to change. Mm. I mean, there used to be a way of looking at history, which is that everything gets better and better all the time. We're on a path to some sort of nirvana. That's called Whig history, and it's, it's, it's out of date. Some things do go backwards. If you look at the rights of women, for example, there's been times when they've improved, and then they have gone back again. You know, it, it just gives you a sense of perspective, really. I think that in 100 years, people will be studying this, hopefully, and thinking, well, you know, you can't judge. There's good things and bad things that, that happen equally. Yeah, I think it's very interesting how sort of layered it all is when you think about it. Um, yeah. 
So going back in time now, you've written, aside from the Austin Girls, you've written a number of young adult novels that centre on historical figures, especially like when they were young women. So I was wondering what you, like what led you to want to sort of re-explore these stories? Um, Did you think their voices were missing or what did you have in mind when it started? Yeah, well, history is my life. I'm so lucky and proud to be a historian. And the reason that I am a historian is really because when I was 11, I used to read historical novels myself and get enormous pleasure out of them, particularly the books by an author who's not so well known today, uh, whose pen name was Jean Plady. Now, if <laughs> what, what I love is that uh, if I, I say, you know, she's not so well known, very often people say, oh, yes, I love Jean Plady too. And she wrote loads and loads and loads of these sort of romantic historical stories. And what I realised looking at them again now is just how rooted they are in the actual contemporary documents of whatever it is that she was talking about. And she wrote some in the Tudor period. She wrote one about the young Queen Elizabeth I growing up. She wrote one about uh, Queen Victoria growing, growing up as well. And that was my way into these stories. And what I wanted to do was to recreate that experience for today's sort of 11 to 14 year old girls. Because hopefully, one of them in 20 years time will be going to Hampton Court Palace and doing my job. And I shall be very proud to build in my own obsolescence that way if I can. I was wondering why, so obviously you said you really loved sort of historical novels as a young girl, but The Austin Girls is your first young adult fiction book that's not sort of connected to a figure of, like from the royal family, as far as I know anyway. So I was wondering why the change from royalty over to yeah. Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm interested in, royal people, not because I'm sort of, sort of crazy royalist, <laughs> but because they tend to be the best documented people who are alive at any given moment. That's a real attraction. And they also come complete with this massive sort of organism, which is called the royal households, all of their ladies in waiting, all of their servants, all of the people who empty the toilets. It's a fascinating, you know, such rich sources for social history. But I had also in my life as a non-fiction history writer for adults looked at Jane Austen uh, particularly through the prism of the different houses where she had lived during the course of her life. I love Jane Austen. And when I was doing that research, I came across in her letters these references that she was making to her nieces, uh, Fanny and Anna. Jane Austen had these, these teenage nieces who um, were coming out onto the marriage market and they were having to make the sort of choices that Jane Austen heroines in the novels had to make. And as soon as I came across these girls, very different from each other, I thought, I have to make these the heroines of a contemporary novel. So that's that's what I did. I like to do that. I like to take a real historical figure and then to go on a riff from the sources into what I imagine might have happened with, with that. And it's it's just such a it's such an alien concept now, being being 14 or 15 and being launched into society and being expected to find a husband. Although there are all sorts of resonances with things that everybody goes through at that stage in life. In the story, for example, there's the, there's the experience of the very slightly disappointing boyfriend, the one who's just perfect on paper, but just doesn't quite press your buttons, for example. I've included one of those. Yeah, it's so true. I remember sort of when I started reading the book, Fanny ref- reflects on the fact that she has to sort of go out and find a husband and thinking she was only 15 and sort of being a bit shocked by that. But then like reflecting on whether she'll be liked and her worrying about sort of how she'll come across, I just found that very relatable. So I think there's definitely things in there that definitely stand out. So they're such great characters. 
I think you're in a really great place in the sense that you find these sort of... Because I was reading also that your another one of your novels for young adults was about a, a young girl who was cousins with... Is it Catherine Palmer or Howard? Oh, Catherine Howard. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. You've, <laughs> you're getting your wives of Henry VIII mixed up. But they are all called Catherine. Three of them are called Catherine. So you, you have every reason for this. Yes. <laughs> that story was about um, Catherine Howard, who was Henry VIII's um, fifth wife. And she was possibly not even 20 when she got married to him. And by this stage in his life, he was early 50s. He got to the obese, paranoid tyrannical state oh my goodness what a disparity in power between those two and I'd always had a sense of unease about Catherine Howard because she's the one who everybody knows you know you will read that she was executed for bad behavior for flirtations for having boyfriends that she shouldn't have and I'd always always thought hang on really is it could an 18-year-old girl really have had the agency, you know, the power, the confidence to do these things of which she was, you know, accused? And I really wanted to explore that. And I've come up with a different interpretation of her behaviour, which forms the story of, um, that book's called Eliza Rose. It's set in the reign of Queen Catherine Howard at Hampton Court Palace. It's all, and because I work at Hampton Court Palace, I just loved doing it because I could recreate all of these places and passages and courtyards and secret hidey holes that I, I was familiar with from, from walking around them every day. It's so great at Hampton Court Palace because you are walking where Catherine Howard and Henry VIII walked themselves. I've heard it said that at Hampton Court Palace, only time and not space separates you from these great events of the past. Yeah. Oh, and Catherine Howard is the palace's most famous ghost as well. She's still oh. there, some people okay. say. Very <laughs> interesting. Um, how do you sort of, obviously, you love history and that's, you know, your whole life. How do you feel about, like, or how do you approach sort of taking these figures and sort of writing them in from, like, a, a fictional sort of standpoint? How do you sort of navigate that? Mm. I think back to the pleasure that I used to get myself in being in swept up in a story when I'm 11. And I just, I just turn off my consciousness. I don't think adults will read this. I don't think adults will judge this. I don't think, like, I'm not writing for my friends. I'm writing for the person who I used to be. And I know through meeting young people, <laughs> they are willing to go on journeys with you. You know, if you say to a group of 11 year old girls, would you please express the story of Catherine Howard through interpretive dance? They'll just do it, you know. <laughs> there's there's no nothing nothing holding them back. So I just throw myself into the into the story and be an, as unashamedly um romantic or icky or um colourful as as I sort of feel, really, trying always to pay attention to making the plot and the character and all the technical parts of fiction as good as they possibly can be as well. I don't do a whole lot of research for these historical novels. Lots of historical novelists would tell you they love doing the research. That's the best bit for them. But I don't concentrate on that because I sort of hope I've internalised the history stuff. And what I want to work on is, is the storytelling and the part that to me feels fresh and exciting and different to what I, what I normally do. Definitely. It's great that you can have access to both of those worlds. That's a great position to be in, I feel. So what really struck me about the Austin girls is the language is really accessible. So obviously you are writing for girls, sort of 11 to 14. But I remember when I was 14 and 
was obsessed with Jane Austen and really wanted to sort of get across those novels, but I felt quite alienated by the language. I sort of struggled with it. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were on sort of if you think that's essential in bringing both like history and literature to younger people. Oh, well, don't get me wrong. You, you, can, you, can, you can start to enjoy Jane Austen at exactly the same age, but not everybody, not everybody will. And if, uh, if, if there's one thing that comes out of my book, I hope it is the idea that um, being a writer is a desirable and cool thing to do and that Jane Austen was a particularly desirable and cool writer. My book is like a warm-up for hopefully, <laughs> it's like a, a flirtation that I hope people will be drawn into and then fall in love with Jane Austen for themselves and uh, it's, it isn't, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not fine writing what I do but I, I sort of don't care. I, I will do, uh, I like, you know, in all, all the type of history that I do, I'm I like to think of myself as the thin end of the wedge. I'm the most, my, I like to do history for, that's not even for people who like history. It's for people who think they don't like history even. It's that I would like it to be the most accessible, the most intriguing sort of way of coaxing people over the threshold into the world of the past, if that makes sense. No, definitely. Honestly, as I was reading it, I wish that I'd had it when I was 14. And just was finding that language, you know, just difficult to contend with because I, yeah, I think it would have been a great way to sort of segue into like a real love for Jane Austen. Um, uh, well, there's a lot in the book that's, that's, that, that riffs off um, Pride and Prejudice or an unfinished story that Jane Austen wrote called The Watsons that real Janeites will identify and recognise and stuff that happened in Jane Austen's real life as well. Like there's a whole subplot involving... Um, shoplifting which was uh one, one of the things the georgians really loved because they were moving into a consumerist society was shopping so <laughs> i've i've introduced that and also some background about the way that justice worked in the in the early 19th century as well yeah. so there's layers there i hope definitely was there just sort of a passion for georgian history that made you want to include those storylines yeah i i i really want to make sure that the stories have some reference to the world that existed at the time. Now, obviously, you cannot just enter into the minds of people in the past. Of course, if you're writing, a, if you're producing a work of history, whether it's fact or fiction, it's a product of um, the year 2020. Mm. But um, the way people thought in their heads and thought about things like love and friendship and God and uh, justice, they, they're all so different. And I can't recreate that totally. But what I can do is, is hint at it and people might be intrigued and surprised to discover that there were no policemen if you you know this whole problem that one of fanny's friends get in gets into cannot be solved by the police because they didn't exist so there was this role in society of the, the the citizen detective if you like um sometimes called the thief taker and i have conjured this up as a uh, an extra string to the bow of jane austen because i'd always imagined her playing the role of a detective in a crime because she's so good at putting things together she's so good at spotting tiny clues and cues that i wanted to present her in that role as well and also you know if i my my, my girls are girls uh who are well off they're rich they live in big houses and i was really anxious that the the action wouldn't all happen in these luxurious environments but that they would go sometimes out of their bubble and into places like the house of correction and meet people who were not so lucky as they were within georgian society for sure that's definitely sort of how i picture jane austen living anyway um <laughs> and i wanted to ask about the way you wrote Jane Austen in the novel because I thought it was great I sort of imagined her as this kind of 
older auntie, but then doing my research, I realised she would have only been sort of early 30s at the time. Um, yeah. How yeah. was it to write about someone that you admire so much? <laughs> well, one of the big, you know, this is one of the big, big, big um, image problems that Jane Austen has and has always had mm. is that people think of her as being like uh, Miss Marple, being a really old lady, um, a spinster, somebody who has somehow failed in the business of marrying and reproducing. And uh, that's something that started really early on in her career. The Victorians had this idea of her. They found it much more comfortable to think of somebody like Miss Marple having produced all of these crazy books, as opposed to somebody who was actually young and attractive and sexy and liked shopping and acted badly on occasion. And yeah. so I wanted to take the image of somebody who appeared to be quite fuddy-duddy and then show that she had hidden depths to her. And I took a great deal of pleasure in doing that. It's because I it's because I grew up as a geek, as a SWAT, as a girl who wore spectacles. And so I always think that people who are geeky and swatty and quiet and interested in writing and who wear spectacles, they need to have their hidden depths revealed. <laughs> I love that. I, f I feel like you've really done her justice, which is... Oh my goodness, that would be, that's a wonderful compliment and I thank <laughs> you for it most sincerely. <laughs> so she was a great character, obviously, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about Fanny and Anna, and you were saying that you sort of found them in your research through sort of letters they'd sort of written. And yeah, I was wondering sort of what it was that stood out to you about Fanny and Anna as well that made you sort of, that really kind of gripped you and made you want to write about them. Ah, well, one of the things that I did was go to the record office of um, the county of Hampshire, which is based in Winchester, and I called up and I read the original of Fanny's diary. So a lot of the scenes in the book are, are taken from um, days that she described in real life in her in her diary. Now she was she she always intrigued me because this is a plot spoiler. But Fanny did not uh, get married in the way that would have been expected for a girl of her social class and time. Uh, her, her her story was quite it differed from the norm. So that's why I felt she would make a good heroine. And then her cousin Anna is the most fantastic character because in real life, uh, you know, Jane, Jane Austen herself expresses this. She was a bit bonkers, Anna was. She was very, <laughs> she was very extrovert. She could make crazy decisions. She'd get very angry with people. And her real life um, story of getting engaged, then breaking the engagement, then going off with somebody else, you couldn't make, you couldn't make that up, but, <laughs> but, but it happened. And um, I also felt for Anna because she was at a, a lower level of society. So in Georgian society, the level at which you are at is really important to you. You care that you've got, you know, 200 pounds a year less than the exits. It really hurts you. And Anna was, she felt that she was always the underdog, not quite where other members of her family were. And, you know, it's often very true, isn't it? That it's not how much money you have per se that matters. It's how much more or less that you have than the other people that you know. And they were obsessed about these things, um, particularly at this level of society that Anna was at, that was sort of um, genteel poverty. Not, I mean, there was in no way that you could describe her as living in poverty, but that was sort of the way that she saw it because she didn't live in a mansion. And I wanted to express you know her her anger at those you know ridiculous ridiculous feelings the whole point of Jane Austen's novels I think the message that I take away from them is that the Georgian world of upper class women is unfair women feel trapped they expect they are expected to marry for money they cannot they they, they have they have less freedom ironically 
the mm. women who were lower down in Georgian society who could go off and be a governess or run a shop or do stuff like that. Their families had these ridiculous, rigid expectations about what nice young ladies did or didn't do. And yeah. I wanted to see Fanny and Anna coming up against these things and making up their mind about how they were going to react. It's so great that you could read their diaries as well. I love that they're real people. It just adds a whole other dimension that is really interesting. So I was wondering, we've sort of touched on this already, but I was wondering if there was a reason you leaned towards young adult more so than sort of writing for adults. Was it because you loved stories as a young girl or was there more to it than that? Uh, I find it very freeing that when I'm writing books, they're not for my friends or my professional colleagues or other historians. It's, it's, it's just for people who are only there for the story. Yeah. Uh, that 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 appeals to me and all of my books do have well it's not so hidden they do have a message in them they do have I hope some okay there's, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom isn't mm. there there's knowledge which is the facts about things and yeah. then there's wisdom which is how to be a better human being and as well as having entertainment from stories I think it's great if you can get some knowledge some facts about what happened in history but also some wisdom which is kind of life advice Mm. And if there is life advice in this story, it is don't care what other people think if you want to try to be a writer. Very true. No, I really like that. Um, and I think also Jane Austen's books were full of that sort of like things you could take away from them and lessons. So I think you've like replicated that really well. The, the reason Jane Austen books are great works of art is because they can be read, you know, like Shakespeare. They can be read on so many levels yeah. and you can read them as fluffy, fluffy, romantic you know love stories and that's how they often come over in feature films the the girl gets the guy and the big house and it's all lovely but there's always something slightly sour about the endings if you look carefully and you 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 know i i think i think that they are they're biting satire really yeah. they look like love stories but really they are critical of the hypocrisy of georgian society and even the heroines don't live happily ever after Exactly. I think when I was a teenager, I sort of got swept up in the whole love story aspect, which I think is, is really lovely and really great. But I remember when I was at uni, um, rereading Pride and Prejudice and just thinking it was so bitingly funny, like especially all the stuff to do with the mother. I just, I couldn't see it as anything more than satirical. So yeah, I think yeah. there's definitely different ways to read. And a little bit cruel as well. And at the end of Pride and Prejudice in the book, right, Lizzie goes off to Pendley, it's fine. And then it's hinted at she loses her family her family are no longer going to be as part of her life in the same way and you can see how embedded she was in her family yeah and there's just a tiny tiny hint there and you you think oh okay a lot of good stuff is happening to lizzie but there is also a sense of loss yeah and that's that is really sad as well when you consider just sort of yeah her relationship to her sisters and things like that and her father as well that is quite mm. devastating to think about sorry i'm getting caught up in talking about jane austen and being a geek not at all it's, 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 yeah, we could do it all day <laughs> so my last couple of questions are sort of about jane austen's book so i was going to ask which is your favorite if you had to pick well yes 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 now i i <laughs> i often get asked this and i sort of know from asking other people that most people would say their favorites is Pride and Prejudice but I personally feel that that's that's entry level yeah. <laughs> I feel they get better than that it's the great one to start with but then you move onwards and upwards and there's a whole other lot of people who would say their favorite is Persuasion the last one that's kind of bittersweet and it's about having a second chance and it's autumnal but personally I find Anne Elliot the heroine of Persuasion 
just a little bit limp. <laughs> and my absolute favourite is uh, the one that some, you know, some people actively dislike this one because uh, it's about a woman who uh, is a bit full of herself, thinks she knows better than everybody else. <laughs> it's a bit difficult. I can't think why she appeals to me, but my favourite is Emma. And uh, I also think that Emma has um, the best love interest in it, Mr Knightley. Yes. And when I was writing about um, Jane Austen, I dedicated my book, which is called Jane Austen at Home. This is my book for grown-ups. I dedicated it to my husband and I called him in it, my Mr Knightley. Aww. And you can tell he's not a Jane Austen lover because he read this and he said, hang on, you made a mistake here. Surely you should have said that I'm your Mr Darcy. And I had to explain to him that Mr Darcy really is a little bit arsy. <laughs> you need to graduate to Mr Knightley who, who Jane Austen herself said had she ever married it would have had to have been to a man like Mr Knightley who unfortunately wasn't available in real life to her No, definitely I think, yeah Emma's a bit of a dark horse in that sense and I think I remember reading a quote saying Jane Austen saying she thought that only she would like her protagonist and Yes, yes, yes and another source for her in creating that character of Emma was Anna, her niece. And you oh, can see some very strong features of Anna's sort of headstrong self-confidence and know-it-allness coming out in the character of Emma as well. That makes me want to go and reread Emma straight away. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you had, so obviously you like Mr Knightley, but do you have any other favourite Austen characters that you'd like to mention? Favourite Austen characters? Oh, I love Catherine Morland with her lank hair and her unimpressive, you know, her, her unimpressive self-presentation. Oh, she's She's great in, in Northanger Abbey. Yeah. Um, other favourite characters? I, I, I have a soft spot for Lydia in Pride and Prejudice, the oh. naughty, stupid, ridiculous one. Yeah. The, tr the, tr the trouble is as well that when you're thinking about individual characters, you also start thinking of portrayals of them in film as well. But we're talking about the actual um, women on the pages. I, I love Jane Austen's false mothers. So often in the, in, the, in the story, the heroine has a mother figure who's not her biological mother. Mm. So the aunt of Lizzie Bennet, um, that sort of person. They come up time and time again. And in them, I think I see a reflection of Jane Austen's own role as an aunt, a really important character in um, the setup of families in the Georgian age because of you know, the high levels of um, childbirth death. So a lot, of, a lot of girls wouldn't have been brought up by their biological mothers. They would have been brought up by other figures in the community, aunts, alternative mothers. And I like this idea that the role of the mother can be spread out through a number of people. In a, usually, this is one of the things that I would argue might have got worse over time, because today families are very nuclear, aren't they? They yeah. think, right, the mother has to be all in all to her children. The Georgians didn't see it like that. They saw bringing up the children as a job for the community in which... Yeah non-biological mothers had a really important role to play. Very much so, and I think that's definitely prevalent in your book as well, because um, with Jane, obviously, being the aunt, and um, even with Fanny sort of being there for her younger siblings, I feel like siblings played a big role as well, whereas, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely different these days. Mm -hmm. Well, Jane, one of the reasons that some people say that Jane Austen herself in real life never married and had children is because in her own family, she lost three of her sisters-in-law oh, wow. to childbirth. And one of them, um, I think, died giving birth to her fourth child, uh, one her ninth, and then the other one, as in the Austin, well, plot spoiler, in the Austin girls, um, she died giving birth to her 10th baby. Wow. Oof. 
that was the price he paid for having achieved this wonderful goal of marrying a rich man. Hooray, you get to die having his babies. Possibly. Possibly. That's a dark view of Georgian society, but there was lots of darkness to see there. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. I think um, women did get a bit of a, a poor deal in that sense, but um, it is very interesting. Um, so I was wondering what comes next for you. Are you going to keep focusing on Jane Austen or are you sort of consumed with your history work or what's what's in the works? Well, I'm moving into a new project at the moment. Um, there's somebody who has a lot of parallels with Jane Austen, actually, who is Agatha Christie. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yes, she's just the sort of person I like writing about. Somebody where I feel I might be able to overturn preconceptions that she was bland, popular, boring and not very deep. And oh, there's lots of books there that I've always loved as well to re-enjoy, to, to revisit, you know. Oh, it's it's... <laughs> it's it's such a scam being a historian because you get to think about things that, that that I just naturally love and I'm interested in. It's yeah. it's it's nice. <laughs> Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. It was a pleasure and a privilege. We absolutely love the book and we can't wait to read your next one. Thank you for having me. This good reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.